Hello, you're very welcome to another episode of F and I Rap Chat. First, we'd like to give a shout out to Tristan Hunyu, who won uh, the best short f- uh, film at, at the Cork Film Festival uh, last night down in Cork. Uh, huge congrats to him. Uh, Tristan has been on the show twice. Uh, you can go back to his first uh, appearance on the show, uh, kind of in the early days of the podcast. And then just recently, uh, we caught up with him again down uh, in Kerry for our Kerry Film Festival special. You can also go back and listen to last week's episode with Fiona Clark, who was the CEO of the Cork Film Festival. And that's a really, really nice episode. A wonderful person and just kind of giving a different insight uh, into how she got into uh, the festival side of things. And uh, yeah, just just a really entertaining listen. Um, uh, Yeah, so... (coughs) We hope anyone who was down in Cork had a great time. Uh, Paul was down with the event last week and got great numbers and great feedback. And we will be releasing um, uh, an episode from his time down there uh, shortly. Um, So today we have Stephen Bradley, uh, an amazing person and filmmaker uh, who came in to us last week. And we had a brilliant conversation with him, Stephen um, survived stage four cancer um, and went on to write a book about his life in film and uh, his journey, his cancer journey. Um, it's a really good read. I've, I've picked it up a few weeks ago and, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. For anyone who's interested in filmmaking, uh, it's brilliant. He's, he's a really good writer um, and you'll <laughs> recognize a lot of the, the troubles that he's gone through. Um, and he, Many people will be familiar with his films like Sweetie Barrett, uh, Boy Eats Girl, and Noble. And uh, it's wonderful to see that Stephen is back uh, after a very uh, difficult couple of years with his illness and is back uh, making films um, and has plans for uh, comedy specials and all sorts of things with his wife, um, Deirdre O'Kane. So, yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite episodes uh it's a really good one um before we go to that uh just some fni news um there is a <coughs> a course for young actors with dara o'toole which will be starting in january uh so if there's any young people in your life that you think will be interested in this um check it out and it might make a really nice christmas present uh so yeah without fu- further ado we will go to Stephen Bradley. Stephen Bradley, thanks very much for coming into the studio with us. Um, so we often start with it. What, what are you? What mode are you in at the moment? You're in prep, or yeah. Thank you for having me. The two poles. Yeah. <laughs> um, what mode am I in now? I'm in just having released my book, yeah. which is called "Shooting and Cutting: A Survivor's Guide to Filmmaking and Other Diseases." In all good bookshops. Totally now. caught my eye when I was in the bookshop. So oh, good. We have to get um, this guy on. <laughs> so I've just released that. Actually, that was released like a couple of weeks ago. So I've been doing all the press on that. Yeah. Um, Finishing with this podcast, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> um, no, that'll be ongoing. Yeah. But no, I'm kind of almost, I'm between now and Christmas, I'm stuck into writing a screenplay, which is one of the projects that I talk about in the book. And then I'll go into pre-production on the Deirdre Kane show for Sky, which is filming in the Olympia in April. Brilliant. So that's exciting, yeah. And what kind of prep time do you need for that kind of a show? Well, it's interesting because it has a casting process. Mm. Mm. We're going to be working with about uh, 15, well, 10, no, 10 other stand-ups. So, so that's a casting process because yeah. obviously we're, we're, we're working with the best of Irish and UK stand-ups. And we're using Via Sky, uh, one of the UK bookers for the UK. So it's, all, it's more complicated than that sounds. I mean, it's a bit like casting A-list cla- cast mm. in, a, in a film. Um, so there's that. that's what I'm doing at the moment with uh, Darren Smith, the producer at Kite Productions. And... Then, you know, we're, we're, because we've got time, because we've got five months, we're actually getting stuck into design and all those things to try and get ahead of ourselves so there's not right. a scramble at the end. So we're trying yeah. to use the fact that we have time yeah. 
to be sensible about pre-production and, and start it early. Yeah. And comedy seems to be something that you've, throughout your career, as maybe in between other projects you've been able to come back to. Do you have a real love for comedy? Yeah, I mean, I do love comedy, and I, I write <laughs> a bit about it in the book, and obviously I'm married to a stand-up comedian in Deirdre O'Kane. Yeah. So I actually... Richard Cook, who started the Cat Laughs Festival in Kilkenny, which is a long time ago, I think 25 years ago, really yeah. showing my age now. Um, he started that and I made a documentary about it the second year uh, and Deirdre was with me and that's how she started looking at stand-up as a possibility to fill in the gaps between acting. Right. Oh, yeah. And stand-up hadn't really taken off at that point here in the UK. I mean, it was really... The only people who were doing it were a group called Mr. Trellis, which was Ardell O'Hanlon, Kevin Gildee and Barry Murphy. Right. And there were, I mean, there were a few others around, but it was in its infancy, you know. Um, so Deirdre started doing it and, you know, I became very involved then in the, in the, the world of stand-up and I went to Australia and America with her when she was doing stand-up and got to know a lot of the other stand-ups, you know. So yeah. then I started um, shooting what were... VHSs and DVDs in those days, you know, <laughs> right. which you'll find in the museum down the road. <laughs> what were they? But yeah, I guess that there was a time when they were the, the stocking filler of choice in there. I guess there was a business. There was a market. massive market. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it was very much, you know, it was a hardware market. You went in and bought that like you went in and so kindly bought my book. Yeah. Um, oh. But it was a massive market, you know, it really was. Um, and the margins for the distributors and the production houses, I mean, I made up, I, I think I did Deirdre's two VHSs, they were, I think, I don't know, the second one was a DVD. That was for EMI. Those were the kind of EMI and Sony and those guys, and they were the, the big companies were making them. Yeah. And I think the margins were extraordinary. I mean, I think it costs, it cost them, you know, 50 cent maybe to, to get a DVD made and packaged in Germany. Yeah. yeah. And they'd be selling them for like 16, 17 quid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then simple enough, you know, multi camera setup. Uh, just do and of course the extraordinary talent on stage yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, well it yeah. was more the brilliant direction i thought yeah. But, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah simple enough setup we would have four operated cameras and then you know a couple of locked off things behind and mm -hmm. um uh, but it was you know it was about the extraordinary talent on stage and just editing it properly so that yeah. you, you weren't wrecking the jokes you know yeah mm. And would you generally do a couple of nights and stitch it together? or The fancy people did, but we right. never had that budget. Right. Uh, I did, no, so I always did them as one-offs. Um, and towards the end, when they, when I say towards the end, this is only five years ago, when the market had fallen out of it, really, I ended up doing a Neil Delamere one and a Des Bishop one in the same night with two different audiences. But it was sort of, you know, the economies of scale and all of right. that were kicking in. Okay. And now it's become Netflix specials, you know? Yeah. And they're very tough to get. I mean, only the really big comedians are getting them. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But there still is a demand for stand-up comedy, you know? Yeah, completely. And I mean, yeah. obviously, all the online platforms, mm -hmm. other than, you know, YouTube is full of stand-up and all the, all the other platforms. Um, and there are stand-ups who... There are people doing comedy on YouTube who end up, selling their live shows that way, you know, and yeah. Foil Arms yeah. and Hog are probably the best example of, they're not exactly stand-up, but they're brilliant sketch show artists. Yeah. And they really have built their audience, you know, by, by working really hard at it, doing that thing they do of releasing a sketch every Thursday at 6pm or whatever it is. Yeah. So that their audience knows where they are. Yeah. And I was looking at the list of the best reviews, reviewed acts at the Edinburgh Festival this year of hundreds and thousands of acts. It was a really long list and yeah. at the top was Foil Arms and Hog. Wow. Just sheer perseverance and... And brilliance. Yeah, I mean, they course, are brilliant. Of course, yeah. but, but working but, that but way But working in. it, yeah, working it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. It's the classic thing because we, we all... It's a bit like for those of us who are thinking about TV drama and whatever, you, you, you think that with the growth of all these platforms comes a growth of opportunity. And actually, there's so many people doing it. It's just the cream always rises to the top. And, it, mm. you know, it's, it's the same with... TV drama that, you know, if you look at the lists, if, if everybody tweets, so, you know, what's your, what, what should I be watching next on Netflix yeah. or Hulu or all the things we meant to Amazon Prime, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the lists are always pretty much the same. 
and they're always the stuff that everybody's taught. The word of mouth is driving. Yeah. yeah. So there's this vast amount of material out there, and the word of mouth is 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 driving what we're all watching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apart from the niches, I mean, obviously, if you have your own fetishes, that's fine. You can you can hook into those. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But that's you know a different conversation, maybe. Can we uh, go a little bit further back and can I ask you about how? I suppose what your earliest influences were in terms of filmmaking and why you kind of ended up where where you are now. Yeah, I wanted to be an actor originally. I had that delusion. Uh, and I studied Trinity, I studied law, and I studied Trinity, I studied law in Trinity, and I spent all my time in players doing right. plays. Yeah. And then the aforementioned Richard Cook, who set up Kilconomics uh, and the Cat Laughs, um, he set up with, we, we did this thing together called the Irish University's Theatre Company, where we got 16 actors from the various dra- dram socks, who all kind of wanted to flirt with possibly becoming professional actors right. and we went to America for six months wow. well originally it was meant to be six months we actually went bankrupt after three months but we had <laughs> the, first, the first three months we did I think 18 venues at college theatres around the, the, the northeast of America which was an amazing experience you know we were driving the trucks and doing everything and we had four plays and 16 actors about three of whom are now professional actors wow. um, and do you want to na- name drop them? Frankie McCafferty. Oh, um, fantastic Caroline, actor. Yeah, fantastic actor, um, who it was in my first film, Sweetie Barrett, actually. Oh. Um, and Caroline Lennon, who lives in London and was on The Archers for a long time. And then a guy called J.D. Kelleher, who has a band and does a lot of performance. That's right, an agency like as well that. in London, I believe. Right, yeah. right. So they're the, they're the main ones. I may have missed a couple of people, but yeah. they're the main ones. In, I mean, Frankie in particular, obviously, has, has done incredibly well over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that cured me of <laughs> really <laughs> thinking my delusions of grandeur. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it was tough. You know, it was tough on the road, and it you know it showed me what how, how unglamorous that life is. And I mean, you know, and I knew. I suppose I didn't want to sort of be a jobbing actor. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to. You know, be do really well and all the things you want to do when you're 20 or 21 or whatever was ever was, and you know, I just got a sense that that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So I came back, and the only I had a law degree, and I had all this publicity in those days. Newspapers were everything. I had all this publicity from the American tour. So I rang up uh, James Hickey, who was pretty much the only media lawyer in in Ireland at that time. I'm sure there are a couple of others, but he, he was the the most prominent one. And I basically said, I'm coming to work for you. I talked my way into an interview and I came in with all the press and I showed him all this stuff. And it just so happened that he needed kind of an assistant at that point because he was doing all the work, putting my left foot together for mm-hmm. producer Noel Pearson. I like your gusto, kid. I like your gusto. Got to be done. <laughs> um, so he, so he t- thankfully took me on. And within three months, my left foot started production you know very rapidly kind of went pre went into pre-production so i jumped onto the production of my left of my left foot and worked with arthur lappin who was the line producer wow um and that was fantastic because obviously you know there were hardly any films being made here it's hard to believe now yeah that was the only film made here that year i don't think there was a film made the next year and then Jim made The Field the following year. Right. I'm going back a long way now. I'm going to eight, 1988. Right, okay. When we shot My Left Foot. And this is pre-film board. That was pre, pre the second film board. So, yeah. so the second film board, or the, the whatever they call it, the reinstatement of the film board, that yeah. was actually Michael D. Yeah. In 1993. Yeah. And myself and Ed Guiney, we had a company called Temple Films, and we made the first film under the film board called Elsa, from a script by Joseph O'Connor from his own short story, Directed by Paddy Bernard. Paddy Bernard, yeah. Wow. Um, and so was that like there weren't many other companies or people setting up companies when you you guys set up Temple? No, and I mean I'd I'd gone to London first because there was nothing to do here. I mean right. after my left foot, there wasn't any chance of going on to another production. Right. So I went and yeah. worked in the box office at the theatre festival, and then I just decided to go to London. And I went to London, and Windmill Lane had just been given TV three at that point. Okay. Um, and then it all kind of collapsed again. But right. it, there was a court case, and I can't remember. It got very complicated. But for about a year, I was supposed to be de- developing stuff for, for TV3 in, in the UK. Um, Windmill had a post-production house called The Mill on Great Marlborough Street in Soho. 
Um, so I had an office there with another guy called John Paul Chapel, and then Ed was working here for Windmill Lane, uh, developing stuff here. And unfortunately, TV3 never happened in that guise, so the two of us kind of got let go. Right. And we set up Temple Films then in 1992, and we we actually rented offices in Windmill Lane, the old Windmill Lane down on the river. Okay. Um, so so Temple survived. Temple was from 1992 to to 2000. Okay. Uh, and we made five mil five films during that time, and did some corporate work, and uh, maybe a couple of commercials, and you know whatever yeah, we could do yeah. to survive. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great time because we were both. Um, Learning, learning the ropes and just diving <laughs> yeah. in, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, did you write Sweetie Barrett? I wrote and directed Sweetie Barrett as yeah. one of those five films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe just talk about that, uh, the genesis of that project, and uh, maybe just a little bit about how you made it, and especially at that in the context of the time, if there wasn't much going on. Yeah, there was very little going on. I mean, Treasure, Rob Walpole and Paddy had their their company, and yeah. we all ended up in um, in a an office called Shamrock Chambers, which is right next to the Irish Film Centre. Um, there, was, there wasn't much going on, and we just kind of went for it. There was, there was kind of bits of European money around. The film board had started up, yeah. uh, so there was a bit of development money to be got there. Um, and I made a short film called Reaper. Uh, I made that in 1994, I think, and... There were lots of festivals around then, just as there are now, um, but there weren't many Irish films going into them. We got loads of rejections, and then fortunately we got accepted into Venice, and we had Guilt Trip, which was Jer Jerry Stenbridge's first film. Yeah. We had made that at the same time, and both of them got selected for Venice. So that was kind of a really big boost to us, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that kind of gave me the confidence to, to write Sweetie Barrett, which I wrote a few drafts of. Um, and, you know, now I tend to write quite slowly and and I, I find it uh, I, I sometimes a bit of a labor whereas then I kind of uh, you know I sort of wrote stuff quickly and okay did more drafts and whatever and actually weirdly we got development money from RTE for it on the basis of a treatment because an independent production unit had just started there and they were Claire Dignan who was the commissioning editor was putting money into all kinds of interesting stuff that mm -hmm. just couldn't happen now yeah <laughs> Um, well, it's certainly, it could not, happen. certainly not now. It could happen, and it will happen again. <laughs> it will happen again, I think, They'll, you know, when, when they get that house in order. Hmm. But that was, so then we had development money, I think, from the film board and from RTE, and RTE put a bit of money into it, and it became one of these European co-productions. Um, and, you know, I got a great cast. I mean, the cast was Brendan Gleeson and Andy Serkis and Liam Cunningham and... Frankie McCafferty and, yeah. you know, lo lots of others. Yeah. Killian Murphy... Andrew Scott, you know, it was it was a great cast. And if you've heard of any of those, yeah, listeners. some of those. <laughs> um, so, you know, I I hadn't really a clue what I was doing, as you don't on your first feature film. And uh, off we went, you know. And then it it was selected for Toronto and and San Sebastian and various other festivals. Um, it it never it never really did any business. The company that made it with us, who were the sales agents, was Handmade Films that George Harrison had set up. Um, and they went bust. Okay. So it got touted around to another sales. It kind of fell apart at that sales point, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But the weird thing is, as I, we were talking about platforms earlier, you know, it's recently been picked up by Amazon in the UK and the US. So it's on the Amazon um, Prime. Prime websites. Right, okay. Yeah. And what are... Did you learn a lot from that experience? A huge amount. I mean, a massive amount. Uh, and on the first day of the shoot, we were shooting in Balbriggan, on, in the harbour in Balbriggan, yeah. uh, in January. We had, we, had, we had plenty of luck. Uh, we had, I think we shot the first, we scheduled the first 10 days all outside, 14 <laughs> days, and we got sunshine and no rain. Oh. But the first day, everything went wrong. All the art department tricks we were trying to do, all of them, all the props, everything went wrong. And I just I remember standing at the top of this slipway as this boat that was meant to be being dragged up just wasn't happening. And then there was a car that later in the film goes into the water and we were filming, we were shooting the taking of it out first <laughs> and that crane wasn't strong enough to take it out. All Everything went wrong. And I just, I remember standing there thinking, I'm just obviously not cut out to be a director. Yeah. Uh, and that, the lesson from that was when you have a bad day on a feature film, don't worry because you'll be able to bury it in the edit. Or you can reshoot it, obviously, mm -hmm. if, you, if you can find some money in the budget. 
But, you know, you start learning the tricks of the trade. Um, and it was, yeah, it was an amazing time. I had this incredible cinematographer called Thomas Mauck, who's still alive. Um, and he had shot quite a few of Werner Herzog's films, wow. including Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre, Wrath of God. Okay. And uh, I learned a huge amount from him. He didn't necessarily get on with the cast very well. So that then I had to learn how to, you know, to how to deal with a kind of senior, relatively senior actors in, in Brendan's case anyway, and, and uh, bolshy old cameramen, you know, and all of those things you've got to learn to do as a director. You're often, you know, you're often the mediator as well. Yeah. And did you kind of have the bug then because you kind of could have gone more the producing route at that stage, but was it where you said I'm being a director from? Yeah, I did have the bug and I could have, I mean, I often think about this in retrospect. I could have gone the commercials route. I had that opportunity mm. and I sometimes really regret that I didn't uh, because Lenny then did that so successfully and then moved into features. Um, and you learn a lot from doing it, I think. You know, Ed and I had the production company, so I was I was also doing other stuff to keep the production comp company going. And I had a responsibility to, you know, the company and we had a couple of employees but but I sort of decided at that point that I really just wanted to where where Ed's idea was that he wanted to kind of grow a, a an empire as he has done so successfully. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I didn't want the responsibility of the empire, and I didn't want what what used to happen to me in in Temple doing other people's films was that Ed would charge around being a visionary producer, and I'd often end up you know picking up the accounts and the, the detail and all of that, which I'm quite good at unfortunately um <laughs> so i would th that's the way the roles went and in a way you know he needed andrew lowe who, who's now his partner in element to mm -hmm. come along and be that person and and i'm not saying andrew's not creative but yeah. you know they have different roles and they're just a perfect fit whereas in some ways i sort of wanted to write and direct more and as you guys know it's hard to write and direct freely um when you've got a, a big company overhead um and, you know, it's it's hard to write and direct freely now when you've got a fairly big family overhead, you know, so the, yeah. the, those things kind of doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to write and direct really and be free to kind of do whatever came along. And, you know, I started working more with Deirdre. And as I say, a couple of times I wish I'd kind of done commercials or may, maybe the other possibility was to go the UK drama route from that time and become a sort of director for hire there. Mm -hmm. which is a route that a lot of other people have done very successfully. So stupidly, I didn't do either of those. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of went into a more sort of freelance way of working. Yeah. Um, so so the, what, what year was Sweetie Barrett? 90s. So Sweetie Barrett came out in... Um, 90, it was shot it in 1998 and it came out in 99. Would that be right? Yeah, I think okay. so, yeah. So then the next... Then we did Disco Pigs in 99 okay. um, with Kirsten Sheridan yeah. and Killian. And then pretty much we folded Temple in, in 2000. Okay. And that was because you wanted to kind of focus on directing? Or yeah, I just, I mean, as I say, we had different ambitions. Yeah, so Ed and yeah. I had a very honest conversation about yeah. it. You know, there was no falling out or anything. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, he then set about setting up Element. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I went off and did all kinds of other things, other crazy things. So your next film would have been Boy Eats Girl. Yeah, which was a long time later. I mean, I probably mm. got into the comedy right. stuff before that. Yeah, do, working with Deirdre. Um, you know, I struggled. I struggled uh, with developing other films um, as a writer. It's it's tough. You know, writing feature films is tough, and I've had a lot of time to think about it. Um, and Part of the problem is that it's not very well financed. You know, it's nice. It's great to have the film board and it's great to have Section 41 and it's great to have, if you like, taxpayers support for it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think the, the scales aren't realistic, you know, and, okay. and it's something that I kind of have started talking a, a lot about here in terms of the fact that I think there are possibilities for TV drama here that can, well, yeah. TV drama, streaming drama that can, you know, go worldwide. Yeah. But we need to invest a lot of money in it. You know, we can talk about that later. Mm. Um, so I struggled at that time to write scripts. I was trying to write some really big scripts. Yeah. And I mean, I was writing one actually for Ed and Andrew. And as Ed <laughs> said to me recently, what were we developing that for? I could never <laughs> have got that made. Um, 
you know, like an epic. and again, there's a certain naivety and a certain kind of Bl blind youthful, ambition, youthful blind ambition, which was great. And I learned a lot about screenwriting, um, did the comedy and then, you know, came to Boyd's Girl, which was a script written by Derek Landy, who's since become very famous and very rich writing um, Skullduggery Pleasant. The, the, they're, 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 are they young adults? I don't know how you describe them. Kind of older children, young adults. Okay. Um, Novel, yeah, it's had huge it. success. Right. He's written about 15 of them or something. And film deals in the work, probably. Film deals in the work. The film no side of it, the film side of it, yeah, is, is, is going frustratingly slowly for him, I think. I mean, okay. I think it's one that, just as um, the other one, the other famous one, Artemis, Artemis Fowl. Well, has that's taken called for ages, yeah. Yeah, he yeah that's that. shot yeah. now. Uh, okay. um, Kenneth Branagh has shot it, and yeah. I think they're probably doing reshoots for the next 10 years, you know. So, <laughs> whatever. That's what they do on those big films, you know, yeah, and then yeah. it comes out on a, on a million screens. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, directing that. That would have been quite a kind of a, a big budget for an. Yeah, it was time. quite a big budget. Uh, it was about four point eight million at the time, I think, which right. was the time was two thousand and four, two thousand and five. Um, and what happened with that was I kind of it was an unusual one for me. Even uh, I suppose the comedy aspect of it wasn't unusual, but the mm. the, the kind of horror was, and um, you know, de um. The script had been written and it had come to me through Ed and I kind of had a, a few thoughts on, you know, what what it needed. And it sort of, it, it came together quite quickly. All the problems with that happened when it finished because it was effectively banned. Um, because the censor's office decided that the, the, it was, a, it's a crazy raucous uh, comedy, kind of mad zombie comedy. You know, yeah. it's the craziest film ever. Yeah. Um, and... There's a scene in it where a guy thinks he's been jilted by his girlfriend and he's kind of getting drunk and messing around in his room and he has a teddy bear hanging there with a noose and he puts his head in the noose and he's playing some mad loud music and his mother, played by Deirdre O'Kane, coincidentally, <laughs> comes in and knocks him off the chair. Um, and then the, 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 this is very early on. Then she has to bring him back to life with this hokey, this hokey you know, local crypt story and all this kind of stuff so it's pretty hokey but some of it's very funny um but the censor's office decided that this was gonna you know cause people to commit self-harm and all, all of that kind of right. thing and kind of took it very seriously and refused to give it a cert so element had to appeal it and it eventually got a 15a cert and by that time the distributors had all you know this is months later had all you know, gone on it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it was a it was a total disaster after we had finished. Okay. So you've you've had those kind of disappointing things where in your career where you're doing everything right and then because of just other parts yeah, of mean, the business. It, yeah. I mean it's it, it, it that happens, you know, and mm. and that wasn't that wasn't as it turned out the worst one. The worst one was was a, a film called Wayfaring Strangers that I was doing in France in 2011 with Killian Murphy in the lead. And that fell apart on the last day of pre-production, the financing. I mean, it was struggling and, you know, there were lots of problems. Yeah. So it's a tricky business, you know. It, it, it can, as you say, things can go wrong that are not in your hands. I mean, yeah. plenty, go th plenty of things go wrong <laughs> that are in your yeah. hands. But it's a tough one when things go wrong that aren't in your hands, you know. Yeah. And distribution is really hard. Uh, I talk about this a lot in the book um, about the disappointment you know the, the the few modest successes but also the disappointments and how the two of them you know you sort of have to just get up and go again how do you pick yourself up from that well the collapse in france uh, that was i mean it was very tough because i'd written that script and i'd been working on it, and i really loved it and you know so as i say world war two yeah it was a world war two sort yeah. of thriller it, it wasn't so much an epic it was quite a tight kind okay. of dra dramatic it wasn't a huge budget but it was very sort of tight and dramatic and I had all my cast, both French and British and some, some, uh, some Irish, obviously, with Killian. Um, and Mark Huberman was cast as well from Ireland. Um, so it was, it was absolutely devastating when it fell apart. Um, and one of the weirdest things was we were shooting in this beautiful old farmhouse. And the weather had been terrible. We were shooting. We were to shoot in August. And the weather had been completely terrible and... The farm has been flooded. It was like a river run through. There was just constant rain all, all through pre-production. Yeah. And it was co unusually cold for the middle of France in that time. 
And what happened was when the film collapsed, the sun came out and the film was all set in a heat wave. It's like in these three days during a heat wave. So you want sun and the sun just came out and it didn't stop shining for about six weeks, which would have been our schedule. So it was kind of the weirdest. I, I describe it as as the the film gods just saying, fuck you and your filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the book, I write about it a little bit. Um, but the reason I could come back from that was that um, after, you know, after a couple of, of weeks of, of um, screaming at the heavens and getting drunk, the reason I could come back from that was that I had already written a couple of uh, drafts of Noble. Okay. And I was producing that myself and I knew how I was going to finance it. Mm. And within about nine months, I was in Saigon with my cameraman you know, in pre-production on that. Yeah. So that was, that was, that, that kept me sane. So always have a couple of plates spinning Spread at the same bets. time. Always. Yeah. I think you need to have about six or eight things. Mm. Okay. Um, is, is what I'm trying to do now. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the moment, you know, since, since I was able to go back to work after, after my illness, um, I've got about, five or six things spinning, one of which has happened, which is the book that's that's just been published. So right. that's the first one. And then the Sky one is the second one. And then I think, I, yes, I do have four others. So that's six mm-hmm. at, at the moment. And then I've been sent a couple of scripts that I like, so I might get involved in those. So mm-hmm. it's to kind of keep picking stuff up because, you know, it takes so long. And you yeah. think they're going to happen fast. And then something happens. And then the other horse comes charging up, you know. Yeah. Um, um, would you have any words of advice to people? Who, who encounter difficulties, you know, on whatever level it is they're working or where, wherever they aspire to be. But um, any words of advice you'd like to impart to them, but also in terms of your what you might have said to yourself in retrospect now when you encounter difficulties? Yeah, I think there are kind of there are, there are also two stages of, of your of your life coming from an old fella there's the stage <laughs> before you have kind of family responsibilities and you need to be earning you definitely earning the money and yeah. there's this so there's the stage before that where hopefully you can be more nimble and you know you can you can work all the hours that god sends and all of those things and then there's the stage afterwards where you've really got to be sensible and try and make some try and cover the overheads and and be responsible yeah yeah and they do that does have a big effect on you you know it does have a big effect on on what you can do mm. Um, difficulties, I, I think it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult business. Even the people who've had massive successes will tell you of their horror stories. And, their, and, and they got up and went again fast, which was why they've now had massive successes, you know. And it's that I describe it in the book as that kind of, you know, that kind of naive drug that you have where you think, you know, the next one will be the, the big yeah. success. Yeah. Um, but I think the difficulties are you've got to take the lessons from them. That's it. You've got to get up and go again for definite. Mm. And if you don't feel like getting up and going again, then you need to go and do something else. Yeah. Um, Was it a case that if uh, Wayfaring Strangers had it worked out, no, Noble w- might never have happened? Was it one of those? No, it, no. W- it, it, no it wasn't. I mean, if, if, if Wayfaring Strangers had worked out and had worked out well, then... I would have had a different journey. I would yeah. have, I would have done Noble, and I would have done it very quickly. But and it would have been coming out. I would have been shooting it when Wayfaring Strangers was coming out. Right, yeah, yeah. But because Killian was in Wayfaring Strangers, he had just done Inception with okay. Leonardo and all that gang and Christopher Nolan directing. So that was kind of really where Killian took off, you know, right. and th- that all led to Peaky Blinders, etc. I mean, obviously he was doing really well before that. He'd made many good films before that. Um, but no, it would have been that nice double of what you're trying to do where yeah. you're shooting the next one when the other one comes out. Yeah. John Borman always said that. You know, John Borman, who was in a different filmmaking time where directors got the opportunity to possibly not be developing them, their stuff so much and were getting offered gigs. You know, yeah. John Borman at a very young age got into the Hollywood gig scene, you know, yeah. having made a couple of great films. And he always said, try and be directing the next one when the other one comes out. Mm. because mm. it's not so hard on you and you're not so obsessed by it. Yeah. You know, and with Noble, because I had written, was directing and producing and my wife was starring in it, you know, it, it kind of consumed the whole family. Right. And because I was producing it, uh, I it was incumbent on me to get that film out there and I spent a long time doing that. So it was a really kind of 
all-consuming, obsessive thing. Yeah. Whereas if I'd been going on to another film, I just wouldn't have been able to be that obsessed and yeah. I wouldn't have been able to travel all around America pushing yeah. it and all that kind of stuff all the time. So it's good advice. I think it's really hard to pull off in the modern day unless <laughs> yeah. you're an A-list director. Yeah. Um, you've made these big films and the, I guess it's the director's job, you know, is carrying a film on their shoulders. How are you with dealing with that kind of responsibility and with stress? It's different. It it depends. Like on Noble, as I say, it was great because I was producing it as well with Melanie Gore Grimes, who I, who had worked on, sorry, on, on Sweetie Barrett. Um way back. Um, so that was different in that I was completely in control of it. So in terms of directing it, I could do exactly what I wanted. I mean, I did take lots of advice from all the good people around me. I hired great people, which is the trick to it all, as you know. Um, uh, so I could really, there, there wasn't that much stress. The stress came later when I was tr trying to get it distributed. Okay. And we didn't get any of the big festivals and we didn't get any of the, the hooks that really help you climb that mountain. Okay. And I had to go the American route of of the, some of the smaller festivals. Um, so we did a whole eight months of the smaller festivals in, in, in the US and we actually won the Audience Award at six in a row. And as I often say to people, that felt to me like a quarter of a Sundance slot in the amount that it kind of, in the interest that it created right. for the film, you know? Wow. If you're not getting one of the big six festivals, it's, it's really tough. Yeah. Mm. A, a hard sell. Um, so in terms of the timeline, the pipeline of the project from, you know, the idea or your initial interest to, you know, production, post and, and then festivals, what was the timeline for that? On Noble. Yeah. On Noble, uh, we had the idea to make it in 2008 and we shot it in 2013 and it came out in America in 2015. Mm. Okay. So um, long. Prepare to you know spend six seven years of your life on something if you you know. Yeah, if you if you're gonna if you're gonna write direct and produce it definitely yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. Was um, sorry go ahead. no Paul after you I, I insist. They, they can of course happen much quicker than that. Yeah. Uh, and the beacon for us was always Paddy Bernock's I Went Down, which was his second film that Conor McPherson wrote. The BBC read the script and they just went, you know, when can you shoot? And it, like it was in, it was it was really quick. And I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of other examples, mm. but I haven't um, had any of them, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and that kind of wrapping up on Noble, was that around the time that you first got sick? So Noble, I did my last festival, which was to be my last festival on Noble in Corsica at the end of 2016. And the American release had been done and, you know, I was back developing other projects and working on other things. But I had never stopped promoting it because in a way, because there's the Internet now, yeah. people are always asking you to do festivals and promote. And, you know, you're always I mean, a weird thing happened, which was in 2016, I think it was 15 or 16. The Cannes Film Festival selected it for they do this thing where they they select some films for the for the the people of Cannes before the festival as a kind of apology for disrupting the whole town for two weeks, right. and they selected it as the film for that screening. Um, so it was presented by Thierry Fermo as the, the the head of Cannes, and 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 you're just kind of going. If we could have had that two years earlier, it would have been a lot more useful, you know. Yeah. So so things keep happening with films, you know, and yeah. now. It's still very much watched on Amazon, particularly in the, in, in the US. And actually, you know, I've just been asked, it hasn't had, ever had a UK say, a TV sale. So that may now happen. Okay. So strange things happen. Anyway, back to your question. The final festival was to be in Corsica, of all places, which is a place I love, 2016. That was the end of 2016. Deirdre and myself decided in January of 2000, sorry, that was 2015. At the beginning of 2016, Deirdre and myself decided to move back here. We were living, we lived in London for 10 years right. and we got offers of, of places for our kids at school, at good schools here. And so we just jumped and moved within three months. And within three weeks, I had been diagnosed with cancer. Okay. So it was April 2016. Okay. So it was the it was the kind of natural end of that whole process. Yeah, um, yeah. And then that happened. And what had pushed you to come home? As I say, we'd we'd kind of felt that we'd done our bit in mm. um, in the UK. We'd been there for ten years. We'd you know we'd we'd made noble. We'd been through that whole journey. Um, 
you know, the, uh, all, all, the gra- all the kids' grandparents were still alive at that point. Dee's dad, unfortunately, died last year. But it was, you know, coming back for family and coming back for schools, really. Our, our eldest was about to start secondary school and we just didn't want to go into the, into the, U, U, the, the UK system. Yeah. Um, but really it was because, you know, we missed, it. We missed being here so much. <laughs> and we had moved just before the crash. We'd moved to London just before the crash. And we moved back to Ireland just before Brexit. So they voted on Brexit. So we reckon people have to watch where we're going next. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, was it because you got a very, quite a severe uh, diagnosis? Yeah, I got a very severe diagnosis at the beginning. At the beginning, I mean, I got stage four cancer and it was it was it was bowel cancer that had gone to a very large metastasis in my liver. And at the beginning, it, it just didn't look good at all. Right. And so it didn't, yeah, so you were kind of laid up, basically, so you were... Yeah, so I spent a year of non-stop cancer treatment, including two huge surgeries and two bouts of chemotherapy and an immunotherapy drug that I discovered that I wouldn't have got if I'd been in the UK on the NHS. Really? Um, so there are interesting things there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a year of being totally out of action. Okay. And then was there a point in your recuperation where... Things were looking better and you could start thinking about Yeah, so that was about the summer of 2017, about sort of 16 months after I started. Uh, I mean, I had more treatment then later, but it was more intermittent. So I could, I I started feeling healthier and and I started thinking about work again. Okay. Uh, And then out of the blue came a script called The Safe from a guy called Owen O'Neill who lives in London and is a very well-known stand-up comedian in that those circles and who wrote Danny Boyle's first film and is a published poet and adapted The Shawshank Redemption for the stage with Stephen King's permission and has done loads of amazing stuff. And he sent me the script. out. Of, it came completely out of the blue. I don't know why he sent it to me. And there was just something about it that uh, there was a couple of connections that I had to it. Yeah. I talk about it in the book. Um and so I just decided I'd take that as a kind of a, as an omen. And uh, we've been developing that since then. So that's we've been developing that together for two years with support of Screen Ireland. And that's just getting to the point now where I'm going to take it out to producers. Amazing. And was it just something in your previous work that he felt that you were the man for the job or? Deirdre keeps saying to me, How can't men are weird? How come you don't know why he sent it to you? And I did ask him, and I can't even remember the answer, to be honest. It was just, he thought, oh, I know what it was. He met Damien O'Donnell, the great Damien O'Donnell, who uh, is one of the best directors this country's ever produced. And um, Damien, they were just talking about me or something, and Damien, they were talking about the, it was really random, and Damien said, why don't you send it to Stephen? Sounds like something you might be interested in. I think that's how it happened. So in it came, you know, and he had been developing it for a long time before that. And it had been all these different stories and different this and different that. Yeah. So he was al- almost ready to give up on it, I think. Um, so he was absolutely thrilled when I showed some interest. Now, I showed some interest. You know, we've done a lot of work on the yeah. script and it's been a really enjoyable experience. Made a little bit easier by the fact that we've had a bit of cash from, from Screen Ireland. Um, well, it's nice to see word of mouth is still alive and well, you know, referrals. and Yeah, I think that's, I think it's even more alive and well, you know, I think that's what, like, that's what social media is all about. And I think, I think, and I mean, as you say, person to person, but, you know, people are, are almost more sociable. I mean, I know some people call it anti-social media and there's all the terrible shit you have to wade through to get to the good people. But actually, if you only follow good people then you only see their stuff. You don't necessarily see all the crap. Yeah, people you know? need to concentrate on the positives, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, I've made contact even over the book. You know, like, yeah. t- t- I don't really do Facebook a lot. I'm like, Twitter is my thing. Yeah. Uh, because I find it so easy compared to Instagram and Facebook. I know Instagram's m- much bigger and that's where I'm meant to be, but I just find that, <laughs> I find that more difficult. Whereas Twitter, I find it really zingy. You know, it's it's like, it's fast. And, and you know, even on the book, I've met, some really great people who've been really supportive on the book and have done reviews and, yeah. you know. Um, so I think word of mouth, uh, back, to the net, back to the Netflix, Amazon, you know, who, mm. what are your favourite shows at the moment? Mm. That's, that's driving the whole of what everybody's watching, word mm. of mouth. Now, it may not be spoken as much as it was in the pub and it's more on Twitter or whatever. Yeah. But I think people are 
all kinds of weird. I talk about this in the book as well. You know, video and DVD were meant to kill telly, and then you know, you know, yeah. Um, Cinema is meant to be killed by the streaming and all of that. You know, and none of it, none of it's happened. It's yeah. just all grown. And books, you know, physical books are now outselling Kindles. Kindle, you yeah, know, more prop, people are proper are, are order. Gonna, you know, mm-hmm. so there's all of that. It's just kind of, it's just kind of exploded, hasn't it? And it's yeah. kind of fragmented. But I think it can be just as interesting. Yeah, yeah, most well, certainly. Anybody excite you out there at the moment in terms of Irish film and TV? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard. That's a hard question just because, as I say, because I went, went out, literally disappeared, and I say this in the book, I literally disappeared for a year, a year and a half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also disappeared from what was out there. You know, yeah. I, I literally wasn't going anywhere and I wasn't seeing anything. Um, and I suppose in the last year and a half, I've really been focusing on getting my own stuff back. And I haven't been going to a loads of cinema and I haven't been watching loads of telly and, and I've sort of been had to refocus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that there are loads of really talented um, filmmakers here and, and directors and, and writers. What frustrates me, as I say, and, and you know, and, and, and the older ones who've survived have survived <laughs> because they're talented as well. Yeah. Um, what frustrates me is the difficulty of Ireland in particular, possibly. Uh, we're English language, so we're competing with, it sounds like an, an obvious thing to say, but competing with the UK and, and America in that, like, it's fine to have that as a, um, it's great for a market, but when you're competing for the for the finance for producing stuff, it's difficult. It's not the same as, say, in Denmark, where, they're making stuff. Everyone's going to watch it because it's in Danish, you know, mm-hmm. which is a similar sized country. And and um, and also the struggles that we've had with with TV broadcasters here and the, and the small amount of finance that there is from there. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it was interesting to me that um, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar went to L.A. a couple of weeks ago and they're opening a film commission over there. And that sounds like treating it more like a business on the film side, you know, and the TV side, the two mix now. Yeah. Um, and I think that's how it has to be approached. And because there are massive possibilities there. And if we're saying we have massive talent here, which we do. I mean, I was listening to a guy talking about the Facebook Ferrari and there's a guy, I can't remember his name, but he, he's this guy who's kind of trying to disrupt Google and Facebook. He, he originally um, invested in Facebook. I don't know if you know this guy. No, he, no. He, I should know his name. Um, and he, he's kind of saying, you know, Ireland's a centre of, if actually there'd be more startups here in the digital side if if it wasn't so dominated by Facebook and digital here right. or in Google here. And I kind of feel like that slightly that with film and television here, we may have a lot of talent, but there's not that 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 much uh, resource in terms of funding R&D, mm. in terms of funding writers and scripts is really what I'm talking about. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. And I think, I think if we're going to say this is, this is an industry worth talking about, it's an industry of the future um, and Ireland can use it for tourism as well as employment and all those things, then it's crazy to me that we're not spending more money on R&D. It's crazy to me that we're not spending more money on supporting writers mm-hmm. and supporting them so they can live properly while they're writing something. I mean, the other side of this is, you know, we've, we ha- we're lucky to have taxpayers' money and in other countries they don't have that and whatever. But if, at the same time, if the state is starting to talk about it as an industry that we're going to grow and we're going to, bu- you know, we've got Troy Studios and we've got this, we're going to build more studio space, mm-hmm. etc., then we need to start at the beginning and we need to go. We traditionally have had great writers mm-hmm. and we've got loads of best-selling novelists. Yeah. And I've met journalists on the trail of selling this book who are going, oh, I've got a master's in screenwriting and this and that, <laughs> but I've got to do journalism all day to pay the bills. Yeah. You know, we've got to, we've got to stop that. We've got to, we're not we've, doing enough. No, we're, we haven't got the resources. And, you know, the film board, the Screen Ireland are stretched and, you know, the executives there are really stretched. And, they, you know, they can't offer that much, you know, the, the, the sums aren't enough for people to be treating it as their only source of income at all. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they, the, are, they are making some strides in terms of, you know, uh, you know payments, social welfare payments. And, and, no, all, and of that is, all of that is good, but, you know, it's got to be, if it's, if, it's, if, it's, if it's an international global industry that could possibly bring in hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions in profit, then you can't be talking just about social welfare backup and whatever. Mm-hmm. You've got to be talking about, right, 
let's invest in this properly. Yeah. You know, and I kind of compare it. I think what happens is that, that it's seen as a very risky business because it is a very risky business. And there's lots of, um, there's lots of uh, carnage along the way in terms of scripts that never get there. Yeah. And I compare it a little bit. I, I, I think there's huge amounts of money going to the, into the horse racing business here mm-hmm. in Ireland and horse breeding. And th- people don't go, that horse race, there was 15 horses in it and only one of them won. Why are we funding that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. the same thing. We've got to be prepared for mm-hmm. 20 screenplays to be developed and only one of them to go. But if that yeah. one is really well developed and does really well, that's the one you want. And if we're going to make, you know, the crown or, or the equivalent of the crown or Peaky Blinders or whatever here, something that is a global smash. Now, it has been done because James Flynn and, and Morgan O'Sullivan did it with the Tudors and Vikings and, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. And, and Neil kind of did it with the Borgias. And, but you're talking about Michael Hurst having written all of Vikings and Tudors. You know, uh, we've got to find the writers and we've got to fund them properly and we've got to fund it so it's not a part-time job for them, which it has to be now because, you know, we can't afford... Screen Ireland, as I say, is very stretched and we can't afford the level of income that, that writers, particularly older writers who have, have families, can, can, can commit to it. And so that, how do, to me, uh, is how a do we do craziness. that? I mean, how do we, you know, put, uh, there's a plaster going over an open wound there, but how do we, like... Well, I think it, t- it takes some leadership, you know, it takes some political leadership, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only a couple of companies here, the Elements, etc., who have deep enough pockets to really pounce on something and pay for it themselves out of their own resources, if it's, a, you know, normal people or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they do get supported, obviously, by Screen Ireland themselves. But I think it takes leadership to go, we need to hothouse this and we need to give Screen Ireland a lot more money. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've, yeah. got, we've got great new leadership there. And James did really well when he was there. And the one thing he always said, James Hickey always said, if I had more money, I'd spend it on development. And it makes sense. And I think just... We've got to get over the fact that there is a, that there are lots of lots of R and D doesn't work. It's but it's like anything. It's like yeah. pharmaceuticals. You know, R and D often doesn't work. Mm. But you've got to be in a situation where you can pay the writers that deserve to be doing that stuff and younger writers and people coming through. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to resource that properly so that they can do it as their main job yeah. and not feel guilty. And, and not feel guilty and not f- I mean writing is uh, writing screenplays is really really hard you're in a really difficult situation you're you feel very vulnerable because it's a business where yes a great screenplay is, is the blueprint but also you get battered along the way and when you hand it over everybody just rips it apart and does whatever they want with it so it's a very vulnerable place screenwriting I find yeah. so it needs support and it needs imprimatur and it needs you to feel valued both monetarily as well as working with great producers and you know great producers are another part of this you know mm-hmm. writers need to work with great producers so that they have good and directors so that they have good direction in the in the in the development process but all of that needs to be funded you know mm-hmm. directors need to be funded during if they're doing a lot of work with a writer during the the the, the development process um so i i i think the answer to it is some political will to go, this is a business, this is a futuristic business. Everyone's talking about this as one of the great global businesses along with digital uh, and all the other side of digital yeah. um, and robots and whatever. But everybody's talking about, uh, I talk about it in my book, there's a chapter where I, I, I give it a good rant. Um, you know, it, it is a big global business and we've, we've got to have successes in it and we've got to keep the intellectual property at home. We've got to keep the profits at home. So mm. we need to be making the equivalent, you know, the crown is 100 million sterling yeah. per series yeah. you know and plus all the sales after that and the dvds and which still exist on a series like that yeah um and that's about writing that's mm-hmm. about the fact that peter morgan is a genius and you know that he's got the support all the way along and ditto with Stephen knight on peaky blinders and it is about finding those great people mm-hmm. but they're they're probably there amongst all the great novelist for example that we turn out that you that you then got to say well we love you to develop a bible for a series and this and that and they'd go yeah but i'm making a load of money doing <laughs> novels why would i bother doing that you yeah. know if it's if it's if it's an industry then it's an industry you've got to make it an industry and you've got to have the courage to go for it as an industry and invest in writing and as, as i say i quote billy wilder in my book who says it's 80 percent writing and 20 percent execution and when you kind of sat down to write the the book, uh, your first book, right? Yeah. Uh, 
had all the years of say writing screenplays and storytelling and and pitching documents and all that did it did all that help and it just kind of flowed yeah it did page. help i mean it's easier much easier to write straight prose than it right. is to write screenplays because yeah. screenplays have this mathematical structural poetic kind of yeah. dialogue they're so layered and every mm-hmm. time you change a scene it changes the whole screenplay yeah so, so a book I found easier and mo- more enjoyable in a way because you can play with the language and you know that somebody is reading it as the final product. Yeah. Whereas with a screenplay, you know that it's you know an architect's That's drawings. It. You know. Yeah. What does someone say? Uh, it's a begging document. A begging document. You know, <laughs> you know, and that, that again, that's like how vulnerable do you feel? You know, when you're writing a begging document. You know, so. You know, I can't take away from the vulnerability and the and the the stresses of of being a screenwriter and the hoops that you have to go through to get something made. I can't take away from any of that, but I just feel that we have to, we as an industry, we've we've got to pay much more attention to yeah. those vulnerabilities and those necessities. And you know, we writers we're all incredibly neurotic, mm. um, so that has to be serviced as well. And and yet it's part of a business, you know. And yeah. it, I mean, that's why in, in Hollywood when they made the, the writers' factories, it kind of made sense because you did what you did, and if you weren't any good, you got fired. But at least you got paid well for doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the future's TV for Ireland. You believe? Well, cinemas. I mean, I'm I'm developing. I'm developing three films, one of which is a low-budget film that I'm, I'm developing with a kind of revolutionary distribution platform that I won't talk about because somebody... Oh, you can come it. back again, maybe. Something yeah. After it's launched. Uh, and one of which, The Safe, the one with Owen O'Neill, I mean, we're two old fellas developing this thing. So one of them is, is a very traditional kind of... It's, it, the Safe, although it has a great premise, it's, it's kind of quite a traditional old cinematic fil- film... And what I'm saying is this is an Irish film for an Irish audience. That's who I'm going for. I'm not telling you it's going to get into this festival or that festival or the other. I'm telling you it's going to do really well here in Ireland because it's going to have Irish cast and it's got an Irish sensibility. Mm-hmm. And th- those films can do well here, I think. Well, we've proved that in the you last... Know, well, Black 47 is a really interesting example because the people came out to that film mm. who don't normally go to the cinema and it did 2 million euros at the box office or more or something. You know, Now, it's tough to sell them abroad, but, you know, to have a success here is is re- really exciting cinematically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to be kind of a strange one in that I think maybe the filmmakers were thinking more internationally, but it was actually, it was the Irish Yeah, I don't audience. know. Maybe it's done yeah. well. I don't know what it's done internationally, to be honest, but, but I'm, I was really interested. I think mm. there's, you know, I think that the trouble with cinema distribution is you, you've, you've <laughs> got to decide, you know, actually... Ed, I was talking to Ed Guiney about this recently, and he said, you know, with cinema distribution now, you've really got to decide w- w- what it is that you're doing and not hope that it's going to go everywhere. You know, so f- the favourite revolutionised the whole genre. You know, it took, yeah. the, it took the costume drama and just kicked it up the arse in a brilliant way. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, that's why it did so well and that's what's so brilliant about it. Um, and I think with The Safe, it's got a really interesting premise and a really good clock to the narrative. And, and I think I can attract some top Irish cast to it. Yeah. And those two things, it's all about word of mouth, as you said. It's all, you've got, with cinema, you've got to be coming out of the cinema going to people. You've got to go and see that. Because yeah, yeah. if, if, if you're not saying that, they won't, the, the, a few of them will go in dribs and drabs. Yeah. It's got to be that. Otherwise, you know, it's back to the t- watching on the telephone. Um, mm. watching on the mobile phone. And, you know, but so, so I still think there's a, a, a future, a great future for cinema, but, you know, and, th- th- you know, back to the wastage. I mean, there are about 10,000 feature films made a year that are intended for cinema, you know, to be seen in the cinema yeah. and do all the, fe- all the worldwide festivals. And we probably hear about 50 of them. Yeah. Hear of about 50 of them, you know? I mean, maybe 100. Mm. Um, so that's massive wastage, and that's people with their dreams and money being spent on it. But now all of those can find a life online in the in the fetish niches. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, maybe there's gonna maybe there are gonna be films that become successful online that were made twenty years ago, and that a, a new audience finds, and that they bubble up. Yeah, you yeah. know the Rick Astley effect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it's exciting. It's all exciting. I still think you can find a cinema audience, but you've got to be very sure about what you're pitching, to, why you, you're, you're going to find it. And then it's, listen, then it either flies or it dies. You know, that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. And there's no controlling that. 
Okay, I think uh, we better wrap it up. Um, thanks a million. Could sit here literally all day and have a chat with you. Well, thank you, the two polls. Um, and if you, yeah, uh, just for listeners as well, uh, one more time, uh, what's the name of your book? And it's published My book by is called Shooting and Cutting, A Survivor's Guide to Filmmaking and Other Diseases. And it is published by Cork's best publisher, Mercia Press. <laughs> <laughs> and where I, I got mine in... Hodges and Figures, is it most bookshops? Eastern yeah, I think it's in a lot of bookshops. I uh, hope it is anyway. Yeah. And uh, you can get it on the Mercer Books, Mercer Press website and on Amazon and yeah. kenny's.ie and all kinds of other uh, online outlets. Yeah. Lovely. Thanks so much. <laughs>